iTunes presents Meet the Filmmaker at the Tribeca Film Festival. At this time, please join me in welcoming Adam Agoyan and tonight's guest moderator, Anthony Kaufman, uh, IndieWire contributor. Welcome them both. Hi. Thanks for coming out. So um, I, I would say that of all the filmmakers that are coming to visit uh, the Apple Store, Adam actually may be one of the more appropriate, considering um, your use of uh, the, the, the computers in this movie, but also your just general interest in technology that runs through all of your films. And I thought that would be a good starting point, um, because from your first films, Family Viewing, Next of Kin, um, and Speaking Parts, which we were just talking about before, which are over 20 years old now, pretty much, and yet the, the concerns of technology and how they uh, structure our lives, our identity, and the way we relate to other people still seem very current as they are in this latest movie. So maybe just as a starting question, um, and I think we'll probably keep dovetailing back to these questions throughout tonight, what is your feeling about technology and how it mitigates or interrupts you know, our ability to connect? Um, I'm sure everyone here is, you know, emails and goes on chat rooms and everything like that. So it, it just seems very relevant to uh, this space and your latest movie. Um, well, I, I don't know if it does mitigate or interrupt our ability to communicate anymore. I think uh, uh, in the earlier films, certainly in the 80s, I was really uh, quite obsessed with this idea that uh, our ability to find intimacy and connection with each other was very filtered and uh, perhaps even uh, blocked by the technologies that we were using, uh, that there was this sense in those earlier films, like Speaking Parts and Family Viewing, that, that, that there was, a, there was a, a huge barrier that, that was being set up uh, through the technologies, yet even through that in a film like Family Viewing, you had this young male character who was able to then find a way to use that technology to actually liberate himself, right? And that becomes this, this kind of uh, strangely epic struggle within that movie. Um, you know, the thing that's odd is that 20 years later with a film like Adoration, the texture that I'm using is still quite similar, which is people on uh, screens facing each other and, and speaking with each other. But unlike Speaking Parts, which was about closed satellite communication, which was very costly, which is very closed, and uh, uh, could, was only uh, uh, available to, to to the few who could have afford it. They're in like conference rooms. Yes, you know, uh, uh, you know the, the internet is obviously widely available and actually there are no barriers at all. I, I actually uh, think it's incredibly exciting and it's, it's it, it, you know, it, in fact, what we're facing is the opposite where we're saturated with a type of intimacy that we could never have expected and that, that comes with a, an immediacy of response and um, I think that the issues that Simon is facing uh, when he takes a story to the internet uh, are really different from what was being examined like you know in, in, in with in speaking parts or those earlier films even though it looks the same and that's what's a little deceptive and weird I mean I you know you all know that when you look at uh, the way uh, tape recorders uh, looked 20 years ago or uh, you can immediately say oh that dates that film uh, because we don't use that type of machinery anymore well 
if you look at a film like Speaking Parts, it still looks the same. It's people looking at each other. As a matter of fact, I was talking today about an early film that I watched by Fr Fritz Lang called Lilium, um, where uh, it has this groundbreaking scene. This film was shot in 33, where a man is, dies, goes to purgatory, and his life is played back to him. Uh, and there's time code on it, and uh, it's, it's, it, there's a scene that we saw within the film played back as a flashback within the frame. And it was like unbelievable that Lang would have anticipated that. Um, but it, of course, he explored monitors in Metropolis as well. So um, I, I, I think that the internet is incredibly liberating. I think it's an amazing de democratic tool. I think it, it, you know, it tracks all sorts of fringe you know, groups, create subcultures. Um, you'll see some of those when you see adoration. I mean, uh, really weird characters find their way onto the net responding to Simon's story, but it's exciting. And, you know, the, the thing that Simon finds when he goes on his personal journey is that he goes through the net, but ultimately still has to make his journey in the physical world. You know, that, that he has to emerge from that because the internet is not a, a place for uh, catharsis. You know, there's no resolution on the internet because by its very nature, the way it's designed, it's open-ended. It just, you know, it keeps, it keeps opening up new frontiers that you can explore. Uh, and so for someone who's looking for something that's emotionally rooted, you have to at one point disengage and take that journey in, in, in the real world, I think, and, and, make, a, and make a physical choice. Um, because I don't think anyone's seen the movie, maybe we should, uh, you know, give them a little... Uh, uh, yeah, brief uh, synopsis sure. of what okay. you know. What is the story? And and we'll look at a clip okay. in a second that I think um, will explain. Simon it. is 16 years old. Uh, he goes to high school. He his parents uh, have died in an accident uh, eight years before. Um, and there's um, there's some question as to, as to whether or not this was a, this car accident was was an accident or whether or not his father might have crashed the car on purpose. His grandfather, um, you know firmly believes that uh, Simon's mother, who's his daughter, is this saint, this angel, and that uh, Simon's father is, is, is demonic, is a monster who, who actually killed the mother. And he doesn't ever sway from this story, even on his deathbed. So Simon is forced to actually, like any kid uh, would do, is forced to explore who his parents were, but has no means. There's no access uh, to who his parents are. Uh, until one day, uh, his French slash drama teacher reads this news story um, as a translation exercise which is uh, which Simon seizes on and he projects himself into this news story as the son of this terrorist and um, he goes really far with this as a way of exploring and perhaps mourning his father figure his or his father you know uh, he tries to he's angry with the father as this terrorist, he's, um, he, he, he actually at one point tries to accommodate it, one point tries to explain why the father might have done it. At all times, he's talking about himself. But as he relates this to his friends, they, they flip out, you know, because they didn't know about this history he had. And then it gets out into the wider community. And he begins to generate all sorts of responses, uh, most strikingly from a group of people who were on this plane, whose lives would have been taken away if, if Simon's father's bomb had gone off, and they're in mourning over this tragedy that never even happened. And, and uh, we clarify, of course, it's all a false history. It, it's a false history, and we, we know it's a false history. Well, I mean, we don't at the beginning of the film, but we soon 
uh, gather it's a false history. But uh, I think that's one of the things about the internet as well. And, and certainly this generation of, you know, Simon, they're used to avatars, they're used to, you know, uh, characters that they can slip into. And it's part of being on the net, you know, that there's an anonymity. And, um, and what's also interesting in the film is that this starts off as a drama exercise. The teacher has her own particular reasons for inspiring Simon uh, and pushing him to explore this character. And we find that out in the course of the film. And, um, and she's a very yeah, um, obsessed character as well. Um, and I won't give that away. But um, so it's, uh, yeah, it's an unusual piece. Uh, and I'm really excited for people to see it. It opens uh, uh, May 8th here. And um, one of the things I thought it would be fun to talk about was actually the creation of, of this iChat right. room that, that you built. Um, um, how you know? How did you do that? Because right, the iChat does not exist well, with, it, with it, that many frames it, it, and that it, many it, people. It, at this it point. sort of does, and you can Skype up to nine frames. But the reality is, what I wanted to do was to create uh, the feeling that you get in a in a chat room. You know, like and which is still text based, or the the feeling you get when you're twittering, or uh, the sense of an immediate response and a group response. So uh, seeing that as a, as a text uh, image is not very kinetic or interesting. So. Uh, we came up with you know, uh, this uh, iChat, I guess, uh, which is much faster and doesn't look like the way iChat looks right now. And, uh, but I think people get the idea, and it feels real, even though it's slightly ahead of its time, I suppose. And I don't actually think it can work because uh, you know, more and more screens get added and you know, to the point where it's kind of overwhelming, the number of people who are just talking and the texture of it. Um, we set up uh, um, these video chat rooms in a number of high schools uh, and we explored it and you know I went into these uh, high schools and I said okay imagine if one of your friends purported to be uh, this figure uh, aligned to this terrorist and and then before I even finished you know these kids were off and running I mean they just had so many ideas and they immediately kind of seized on this and kind of got it and we ended up using uh, all of these kids in the film so when you see uh, like in those brief scenes or throughout the film, uh, those are actual high school kids, not actors as such. And uh, they were very uh, engaged. And it became obvious that the, no, the performative aspect of being on, uh, on the net was something that they immediately embraced and, and felt comfortable with. The, um, and how did you like technically do it? Well, we, we basically had like up to eight cameras. We were in a studio. We built all these mini sets, like these wall pieces. So if you came into the studio, you'd see eight different rooms. Um, and we did it live. So there were eight different cameras. Everyone could hear each other, and, uh, but they're all looking into their cameras. Uh, and then what we did when, um, for that scene, when Simon is actually engaging, is that we kept his frame blank, and we created a program where we could have live image feed of from the from the from the Apple camera uh, that we could then program into that space while everything else was pre-programmed. Uh -huh. So um, that scene where he takes his mobile phone and presents it to the uh, lens of his uh, Apple that's live, as you can see on the frame. Um, and also, it's kind of touching that he would do that, right? Because he doesn't download it. He actually, you know, it's very it's a physical gesture that he does. And and at the end of the film, we also you know, I think that's kind of what's, what's interesting about Simon is that even though he's totally connected to this world, he still 
is very physical. And some of the decisions that he makes at the end of the film uh, are, are, are really kind of touchingly um, sacrificial and kind of uh, and ritualized because he's uh, they have to have meaning for him. And he, I don't think he feels that anything that he's actually saying on the net, even though it creates a lot of excitement, it doesn't ultimately feel uh, substantial. And, um, and, and, and I think that's really true. I mean, I, I remember as we were shooting, there was this young woman in Florida who um, she uh, had accused this man of raping her and he was acquitted. And she was like, I don't know if you remember the story, and she was like so uh, outraged by this that she put her story on, on YouTube and she just basically pleaded with people to believe her. And uh, I don't know if any of you saw this, it was, it was really disturbing because you realize like any, you know, uh, search for justice, it's all about, there is a theatrical element as to whether or not the performance is good enough for you to uh, believe her. And she got like so many hits, but I'm not sure if that made her feel any better. I don't know if that gave her any sense of resolution or a sense that justice was being served. And the same thing with Simon. Um, it's one thing to tell, talk to your friends about this who might know you, but then once it gets into a wider community, and I, I wish we could have shown that clip to an extent, with like, you know, when total strangers are reacting and, and getting very weird and very heated, um, you know, that kind of distracts from the, from his journey, you know, and he kind of switches off at that point and, and, and becomes more, and then becomes more extreme, actually identifying with his father and perhaps even leading one to think that he's about to do something really awful himself. Uh, and at that point we gather that the police have intercepted his, his, his monologues and have shut, shut his site down. What, um... Um, I can't remember, so I'm going to switch switch topics. Switch the gear. <laughs> um, the uh, I'm interested because it is something that you return to again and again in the films is a kind of juxtaposition of video images and film images because you chose to shot the film on celluloid. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, and in fact, in this clip, we see you know you're, you're we see certainly when with the shot of the woman at the airport, the the mother at the airport. You know, we see the colors. Saturation of yeah, film, yeah. Right. So you're playing, you're playing with celluloid. But I, I'm, in, I'm interested in, you know, what do you feel like is the sort of, um, you know, effective emotional kind of d difference between video images and film images? Because it's something you've continually. Yeah, sort of I mean, I, I think at one point you could make that division. I don't, not sure if you can anymore. I mean, I think that um, in my earlier films there were sequences on video, and I would then do a kinescope and. Um, actually, like in a film like Family Viewing, you know, one of the characters imagines his life as a soap opera. So we set up this set, we had three video cameras, and we shot it with live switching, and, and then we transferred that directly to film. And when you watch that film projected especially, you can really see that texture as it plays against the film image. Um, and at that point, the video image uh, as a texture um, almost worked uh, as this spontaneous and quite... Um, uh, direct and uh, manipulative uh, sort of texture. You felt that there was something about it that uh, was uh, unstable and could be tampered with. Uh, and also you felt that there was this, uh, it operated, you know, film images take a lot of time to set up. There's a consideration and uh, video images are much more spontaneous and so therefore they can be surreptitious, they can be um, uh, hidden, you know, they have all sorts of uh, uh, associations, or they did.
But I don't think that's the case anymore because the quality of uh, these cameras. I mean, if you look at a film like uh, Michael Haneke's Cache, Hidden, you know, the, he's shooting on high def, so the separation between the high def image and the film image is, is not really there at all. I mean, you, you gather it sometimes when he rewinds, but even that's a little deceptive because the, the texture he's using to rewind is not really what you would get in a digital image. So it's a bit obsolete, actually. The only way that you can now frame it is if you see it within a frame, like you're seeing it on a monitor itself. But to go in, and expect people to pick up the differences in texture is something that is, is of the past. It doesn't really pertain to the way we experience those images anymore. So why did you choose to shoot film for the bulk of the film? Um, because I think that uh, because of the use of digital technology, uh, people all assume that the film would, have a, would, would, would be shot digitally. And I just had this weird, stubborn sense. It wasn't so much the shooting on film, which is still practical. Uh, it's the cutting on film, which I will never do again in my life, which is sad because it means that I'll never make another print, which is from a film negative to a, 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 you know, a, a, a film print. Why is that sad? Because the people who, uh, we, we, uh, when we got the first answer print for Adoration, I got a call from the lab and they said, uh, uh, you've got to come down here because there's this unbelievable sparkle, and, which is dirt. And I, I talked to the negative cutter, who I'd been working with for years, and I said, um, why is there dirt? And, and he said, oh, I'm not sure. I, d I did it the same as I usually do. And I said, you're working in your vacuum room? He said, well, no, I don't have that space anymore. I cut it in my basement because I haven't actually cut negative for over a year. And I went, oh, my God, like, what, what was I risking? I mean, like, you know, uh, and so this is, you know, the, the practice of cutting negative has just, like, become a lost art, which is unfortunate because it's actually less expensive than making a digital intermediate. But, um, and it looks amazing. Like, I, I look at a print of Sweet Hereafter, like a show print, anamorphic, printed off the negative, and there's nothing like it. It's just so sensual and so detailed, but the reality is that's a thing of the past. You know, it's, it's, it's just not very practical anymore. And there are some advantages to DI. I mean, you can do amazing things, but I, I just wanted to have the film look rich and full, and I wanted to frame the, the, the digital image the mo on the monitors in this very velvety, uh, very sensual, and, and mysteriously dark sort of environment. Um, so, well, let me just ask again then. So do you think film is more sensual? Oh, it's definitely more sensual as a medium. I mean, like, uh, it, it's just, it, it, there, first of all, grain is very sensual. Uh, I mean, it's very interesting when you're shooting in, on high def, when you see it projected high def, and, and, and one of the most shocking things for a filmmaker is that there's no grain. and. Uh, that's, you know, and, and so on, on the human face, it's very unforgiving, you know, um, and, and sometimes you have to actually filter it to kind of create the softness that you would get on film. Um, and there are all sorts of technical issues, uh, you know, for instance, like when you're doing like um, hair, there's nets that you can use, net pieces, which film kind of mysteriously erases and high def does not. Uh, so it's, it's, it's really uh, a whole, a revolution in the way we're going to approach the image, which I'm still trying to shoot on film, I think, and we will. I mean, film will still be around for a long time because it just looks so great. But, um, you know, at some point, I suppose, we're not going to be projecting films. I don't have a problem with not projecting films because I think that there's, you know, I, I've been lately, especially, in so many projection situations where the, where the projectionist just drops the ball. Like, you know, the, the, they're not getting the changeovers. It's not in focus. And, you know, there, there's strange things with the, with the racking. And you go, um, that's not acceptable anymore. And, and certainly with, with digital projection, that won't be a problem. You know, or if bulbs aren't kept up, if, if the image is dark. Anyway, we're talking about really technical stuff. Okay. 
I, I find it I find it all very interesting. But um, the uh, so the question I had forgotten before that I'll ask I'll remember is um, is are we would we give away what happens to that cell phone? Should we not say what well, happens? Well, no, the, to that the phone? cell phone is is, I mean, is burned. You know, like ultimately at one point when he decides that what the grandfather is saying is 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 not relevant to his life anymore, he can erase it. But rather than erase the image, he creates this whole bonfire and he sets the, the cell phone on fire. Did you really burn it? Uh, we did really burn it, but, but the image that you see is, is not what would happen if you put That's a cell phone in a fire. No, yeah. no. I mean, it's like, uh, it actually, it's quite dangerous because they, they tend to explode. So, so do not try this at home when you see the film. But, uh, but, but, but it's this idea that, uh, uh, you know, he needs to do something substantial. It's, it's not enough to just erase it. Erasing is, is too easy. And, and, and he wants to create some sort of monument to this decision that he's made. Right, so one, one more quick question on the, uh, on the sort of division between film and video. I was reading in an interview from you uh, about you know, almost 20 years ago, you were talking about how you know, uh, at the time you, were never, you weren't thinking about what your film, films look like on a video screen. You were thinking about you know, how they look on a big screen. Right. Um, but now, of course, yeah. the way we watch movies you know, more often than not, it seems, people are watching them on, on, on smaller screens. Does I, that... Yeah. It, do you it, think about that? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, that's the short that we were talking about. I did a, a short for the Cannes Film Festival. There was a 60th anniversary two years ago, and uh, they asked a number of filmmakers to meditate on the state of film and, and, and projection and, 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 and cinema. Like what, and so uh, in, in, in my short... Uh, which is called Arto Double Bill. It's about these two young women who are watching different films during a festival, and one of them is seeing uh, uh, Godard's um, um, uh, Viva Savi with Anna Karenina. And there's a scene where er Anna Karenina goes into a cinema to watch Dreyer's Passion of Joan of Arc, and she sees this image of Antonin Artaud, who's a really gorgeous guy, and she texts her friend on, on her mobile saying, you've got to check, you know, this is the most handsome man I've ever seen. And the friend says, send me a clip. So she takes her mobile camera and, and shoots off the screen. And inadvertently, as part of the clip of Antonin Artaud, there's an image of René Falconetti playing Joan of Arc, which is the most famous close-up, I guess, in cinema history, right? And, um, and, and this friend receives it on the cell phone. And you kind of get the sense that the only time this person will ever see this image of Randy Falconetti will be on her cell phone. And uh, whether or not that motivates her to go and see a projection of it, probably not. I mean, it's so convenient to have these references. I mean, our, our son, his favorite film is The Godfather. He's got that downloaded onto his, onto his uh, iPhone, you know. And, and uh, I mean, on the one hand, I, I'm happy that he, you know, you know, he likes The Godfather, but it's just so weird to see these rich film images um, on the screen, but it's reality, you know, it's, it's, it's you know, you can be elitist about it and you can say it's, it trivializes the image, but it is what people use. So, um, uh, I, 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 nothing experiences the image of seeing a human face uh, projected uh, on the scale of a large screen. Uh, that is the mystery of cinema. That's probably the most cinematic thing one can do, is, is the projection of a close-up because it's, it's, it's so particular to that art form. And I don't know if any of you saw this play I did at Lincoln Center last summer called uh, A. Joe, where we had uh, this Beckett piece where we were using a, a live uh, close-up um, uh, on, on the scrim, and it's magical to see the human face um, on that scale. But that's not how most people are gonna see films. And uh, maybe that's now 
best served in art galleries as installation work or you know a place where people are are used to going to 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 really consider and, and to bathe in, in in the in the grandeur of that of that image um, coming back to adoration i I wanted to bring up the title uh, in the context of these sort of precious objects that you know we're mentioning whether it's what's on our cell phone or, or in the film, there's, there's several, right? Um, what does, wh when did the title sort of come to you and, and how do you feel like it relates to the film? Well, I was looking for a word that expressed, you know, the, there is this, there's a missing scene in this film which undermines the whole action, which is the French teacher uh, who, who inspires Simon to, to tell his story and I'll, I'll give it away. I mean, um, she, she was married to Simon's father before Simon's father met this boy's mother. And she's never gotten over the fact that she lost her husband. And we gather that she became quite obsessive at that point and would actually stalk this man's house. And there are these scenes that we're seeing of the house that we think are from Simon's memory, but later on we might think are actually um, Sabine imagining this man's life in this house. And that look... I wanted to find a word that would talk about looking at something with a sense of devotion and concentration. And that word is adoration. I mean, adoration is, 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 is a gaze towards something that you revere. And, um, and also, of course, it has you know, all sorts of other associations. It has you know, religious associations. But again, the adoration of the, of, of the, of the Magi is, is you know, the beholding this this. this, this this prophet, this child. So it's this. It's this. It's a biblical term, um, but it does suggest looking at, at something which is sacred or uh, deserving of, of some degree of reverence. So in this film, we also have a number of objects which are the uh, you know which are treated with adoration. Um, there's this uh, crash. There's this violin, a sacred violin that the boy um, belonged to the boy's mother. And in each of those, there's actually a scroll, you know, if you want to get really biblical, that uh, someone has designed, be it his grandmother or the boy's father, which explains how these sacred objects were made. Uh, but they've lost relevance. You know, the people who could actually transmit the value of these objects are not there anymore. So, um, you know, I think th this passage of Simon trying to reconnect to these objects and to these, you know, missing figures of adoration, be they the violin, be they the, um, the, the crash, or be they his, the image of his missing father, um, you know, those, th that undermines the whole movie. So it seemed to be the right word, you know, it just seemed to kind of, um, you know, uh, I, it, it seemed to encapsulate everything that motivates the action in the film. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think what's interesting to me is this boy is imagining this meeting of his parents. His, his mother is a violinist. The father was, was a luthier, uh, someone who repairs instruments. But, you know, this need of a child to elaborate his parents and to embellish and to, you know, uh, and to create a, a, a myth around them, especially in his case where that has been completely repressed and denied. Uh, the father has been made into this demon. You know, he overcompensates and, you know, creates this very lush, lyrical, uh, you know, meeting of, of, of the two people that were to, 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 to be his parents. The, also, the film image is obviously treated very differently. Sure. I mean, it's a, it's a uh, you know, it has this uh, promised filter. It, ha it just feels very lyrical. It, 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 and, and, and again, it's a, if you see a projection, you know, image of that, it's just very, 
sensual and, and, and very, uh, the way the light works is just very um, intense and, what else and dreamy. You, what else did you do? Was that a well, largely I mean, post? Or? Yeah, well, well, no, I mean, the, this is all, you know, like that sort of, you know, that was a set, you know, the, the, the actual uh, violin shop, but it's very, very long lens. Uh, um, and, and again, this, you know, the lighting, it just took forever because it's just like a very, very specific shot. Again, you don't, you know, it's, it's unfortunate to see it on video, but uh, it's, it's uh, all those images of the, of the, of the uh, parents are treated this way with, with this uh, great care, you know. And I really do think that when you, whatever you're doing uh, behind the lens actually transmits you know, to the feeling you get when you watch an image. It's, it's sort of one of the more mysterious things about cinema. It's, it's not just what it's showing, but also the feeling of the people behind the lens, uh, what they've projected into that. And it's, 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 it's a, yeah, it's, it's, it's a transference of that. Do you, do you feel like, uh, I, I was wondering while watching the film, whether, you know, the, the violin being this, you know, wood sort of handmade, yeah. you know, um, you know, object, precious object, versus, I don't know, maybe some of the, the technical... Absolutely. Things. No, I mean, th that's what it's all about. I mean, the reason why he has to elaborate this fantasy is to create a, this sensuality of contact, you know, because he's not been allowed to do that. And, and, and the more he's sort of been telling the story through the internet, which is his next scene that we're going to see, this is the scene where... Uh, his story kind of gets uh, out of the bag, where it begins to kind of infiltrate other people. Like one of the friend's um, parents is a prof, and she kind of posts it on her site, and then it kind of spreads like a like a virus. So, so you'll see like the, it's challenging, and what's challenging is that it does ask the viewer to trust what I'm up to, and also to invest themselves and to really um, um, be curious and exploratory and. Uh, wonder why things are set up the way they are. And it's not even like a traditional mystery where you know that you're supposed to feel that something is mysterious. In this case, there's just moments that are, um, that cannot be resolved as you're watching the film. And on a second viewing, clearly they become really um, very clear. And I would, you know, if possible, you know, suggest people to watch it twice because I think that it's all very carefully planned, but part of it is that you can't absorb everything that's happening as it's happening. And so in that way, it's quite outside of the culture of films that we tend to see, which are um, inviting at all times audience identification. I come from this tradition, you know, born out of a lot of movies that really formed me, where the viewer uh, has, a, has a relationship to the image which is, which is just a more interactive. And uh, I, I love creating that sort of drama. It just seems that's what cinema does because you are seeing these, 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 these filmed sections as, as real. I mean, like, you know, Andrei Tarkovsky wrote this wonderful uh, book called Sculpting in Time. And that really is what cinema does. You know, it, it has the ability to record time. And so how you arrange those moments of time is really open. And I think very often we get locked into sort of this idea that cinema has to be uh, linear and that we have to know where we are at all times. And I just resist that in my own writing. I mean, maybe, you know, when I direct other people's scripts, I have a different approach. And, you know, I can't, it's very particular to my writing. And I think that, you know, I think that the, uh, the directing is an extension of the writing process for me. And, and, and in fact, the editing, it, it, it produces the final draft. You know, it, it, it's not really, you know, a film like Sweet Hereafter changed radically during the editing. Uh, and it, it, because it's not 
relied on conventional plot and uh, uh, plot points, um, it, it's, it's malleable that way. And, and so I, I, I love that. I love the fact that you go into the editing process with something that's open and uh, can find its form and can change its form. What do you, what do you edit on? Um, Avid, you know, um, yeah. and, uh, you know, I, well, I edit myself uh, on, on Final Cut Pro because I understand how to use that better. Uh, so I, um, but, but, you know, when I work with my editor, it, it, it's, it's Avid. Um, so do you, you do a cut by, for yourself? No, no, no. I mean, I, I've done a couple of things. Like I, I did oh. this, uh, this film that I, I shot with my wife in, in Beirut called Citadel, which uh, um, I, I edited myself. It's a tiny, tiny little movie, which, which, uh, uh, but I did that on Final Cut Pro. Um, so, in terms of the structuring of adoration, how much changed? Uh, well, yeah, it, 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 is, it does change. It does evolve. And there's like sound design, there's music, um, and there's all sorts of things which, which kind of open it up. And um, there are surprises that you find as you're editing. And it's, uh, I love that process. I, it, doesn't, it wouldn't necessarily survive a, an audience test screening. Like I, I always remember this screen that we had of, of, of Exotica, not far from here actually, at the Angelica. And I remember. Uh, uh, afterwards, you know, the general consensus was that the ending should be placed at the beginning so that people know where they are and that there should be a voiceover that kind of leads you through it. And you kind of go, well, yes, that would make people aware of where they are, but it would eviscerate the dramatic, you know, um, idea of the movie. I mean, and, and so, so uh, and I think the same thing with Sweet Her After, Ararat, Felicia's Journey, all these films would not necessarily survive a conventional test process because people generally want to know where they are, but that's what I love to resist and play with, you know, like, and, and challenge. It's like, it's just a, uh, and I think it, you can go to places that you can't go to in, in, in a lot of films by, 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 by doing that. Yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> no, but it was great because, I mean, you know, they, they weren't involved in producing it. They were distributors, right. you know, yeah. Um, the, the, this sort of fragmentation that I discussed, I mean, do you think, it's, you know, as you said, it's the way that you sort of write, but is it the way that sort of you see the world? I mean, is there a sort of thematic thing there as well, do you well, feel? I, I look, the thing that inspires me is the inherent complexity of any meeting between two people. Like, like there are so many agendas that one has to navigate if you really commit yourself to, to, a, to a dialogue. And, uh, um, and I find that that's just so overwhelming sometimes, you know, and that we're often taught that uh, meetings between people should be treated very simply and, and that it's natural to connect. But we all know that that's not the case, that it's actually to really connect, to really find intimacy, it's, it's loaded and, and it's, it's not easy. And, and it's, uh, uh, it involves uh, all sorts of negotiations. And, and I, I, I really, um, I, like, I, I, I am thinking about that all the time. I mean, not just between people, but between, you know, within families and certainly within uh, states. And, you know, uh, I mean, uh, and, and you can't just sort of say, well, wouldn't it be great if we all just got along? Well, there's lots of reasons why we, we won't get along. And if we want to have any hope at, at, at somehow reconciling, you know, and that's why a lot of the films deal with this notion of like, well, how do you, how do you create a truth? You know, like truth is not this empirical thing that you just kind of point to and say, this is what happened. It's often in a negotiation, you know, in trying to reconcile differing agendas and people, uh, people's needs to believe different things to, and, and, and within this film and, 
this family, there's this orthodox truth that the grandfather is trying to apply, which just doesn't serve this young man anymore. It just, you know, he might have been able to be raised with this, but as an adolescent, you begin to rebel, and, and you want to know who your parents are, and you're not going to accept those, those answers anymore. And um, it, it's, uh, I, I think in that, in, in, in that sense, the, the technology that we have is, is very exciting because it offers these alternate routes to explore. It really does. I mean, you can, you, can, you can start any sort of journey and the internet will give you, uh, point you in the right direction. I just don't think that it can lead you ultimately to that place. I think that you have to then kind of leave it and, and, and chart a physical relationship with what it is you're, you're searching for. I think as the film suggests and as the other film suggests that, that it does sort of undermine truths as well, right? I mean, we have a fiction that spreads like wildfire as it, you know. But uh, one of the reasons it spreads like wildfire is because people get excited about what it presents in terms of their own neuroses. Like, the, you know, these people, the scene where we just cut suddenly launches into these people who are suddenly, as I said, I mean, Simon's father, and maybe some of you remember this story. It's a new story that happened in 1986. This man talked his Irish girlfriend who was pregnant with his child onto a flight saying that he was going to meet her in Tel Aviv and at the last moment he, he, he decided not to go on the flight and unbeknownst to her he had planted a bomb in her handbag and at the last moment security found the bomb and this major you know, disaster was averted. So Simon says, <laughs> I never thought of it that way, uh, Simon says uh, that uh, he is that unborn child and so that he has to, he's been raised with the legacy of having that as his father. Did his father actually impregnate his mother as a detonating device? And he's trying to understand why his father might have done that. So what then happens is that all these people begin to respond to this story for their own reasons like, uh, and you know, what Simon is looking for becomes kind of secondary to what they're looking for and what they project in this story. So this one guy uh, who, um, you know, who is a traumatized and kind of neurotic person anyhow, you know, blames, was on that flight. His life would have been taken away if that bomb had gone off. But in fact, it never did go off. But he still lives it as though he's a victim. And, you know, he says his whole life has been affected by this, uh, this event that in fact never happened. Um, and he's so fervent about this. Uh, that it becomes absolutely real for him. And, and so people begin to riff off of Simon's story in maybe not a dissimilar way to the way I did when I encountered the story and decided to enjoin it into this drama because it is so provocative. Uh, and this, full, this film is full of uh, people using other people as detonating devices, using them uh, to kind of set off uh, kind of emotional explosions within families or relationships and, uh, and kind of using surrogates so it, it, it's sort of one of the thematics of the film. It, obviously, uh, family dynamics run through mm -hmm. your films, and uh, you know we see these issues being played out within these sort of uh, you know tight generational shifts. Often, often generational, dealing with tensions between uh, children and, and their parents in a lot of the films. Yeah, yeah. think about it. Um, although this one, I feel like, is the most mm, optimistic, maybe. Well, it is optimistic because he comes to a point where uh, uh, an alternate family structure is suggested at the end of the film. Now, whether or not it's viable or will it last, uh, we don't know. But, but there, is, there is sort of a movement towards something which is, um, 
Yeah, and again, I don't want to give it away, but 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 I mean, I I, I do. do th- what do you think? Uh, why do you think you sort of came to this conclusion as opposed to other other films in the past, where I think maybe there is there is less of a uh, a hope for <laughs> for, yeah. for resolution. Well, because I I, I think that uh, I saw the opportunity as I was writing it. I saw that you know that that this uh, that there was a connection that could be made with these people that was earned. You know, and, and it wasn't facile. It was like not a contrivance. It really actually felt that they deserved this conclusion. And so it's a dramatic choice. Um, and, you know, I, it's, it's uh, I mean, I think there are other films that, you know, I mean, I think The End of Exotica is also quite, quite, quite you know, hopeful in a way. Um, Sweet Hereafter, probably not. Uh, actually, definitely not. Um, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of the endings are, are ambiguous, yeah. but, but, this, but this one is quite, you know, and again, I don't think it's sustainable as an alternate family, but it's certainly there. And, and, and it's really about, again, providing this, this boy with some reward for this journey he's been on. And that reward was much closer than he might have thought. And, and anyway, I won't give it away. Yeah. Um, I, Anthony, I think uh, we're running a little short on time, oh, so yeah, I maybe... I was going to say if there was a question Maybe from time the for audience. one more question. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, I think I've got to get to this uh, Q and A, right? Or, yeah. Is there a question? I think we have a question right here in the second row. Hi, I was wondering, um, when dealing with a story that is mul- has multiple storylines and multiple characters, what is the writing process that you go through to make sure that each character is well represented and each storyline is well defined? Um, well, I, I, I. You know, it's an old-fashioned technique. I mean, it is index cards, and it's sort of like setting it up. And, and, and actually, it, it's incredibly valuable to have index cards as you're writing because it, 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 it's what you do in your editing as well, right? You know, you, you know, and you just lay it out, and you, you can kind of actually sort of see the structure, and you can, you can kind of get a sense of things that are, that are not working. And, and, uh, uh, and that's even sometimes before the dialogue is written, or maybe it's after you've written a first draft and you break it down into these, in these cards. And sometimes it's really good to use colored cards as well, which suggest different time zones and, or different sort of uh, periods that you're dealing with. So again, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a more physical thing, and uh, I find that really helpful. We have time for one more quick question? One more? Okay. Right here, yeah. I'm just curious uh, if you can expand in the concept that you were talking about, that uh, your approach when you write your own scripts is more organic and the stories evolve from the, from the screenplay to the first draft to the, to the final editing. Uh, if you take that approach when you're directing a material that you haven't written, that is not your own? Uh, no, I mean, I think that uh, you know, when you're directing other people's material, uh, you're trying to create uh, more choices in the way you're covering it because it has to be more malleable in a, in a conventional way uh, and uh, so let's say this very long shots or these scenes which are really committed um, they are they are something I allow myself to do on my own work because I'm I'm making a, a definite gesture I don't know if that's something that I would uh, use when directing other people's material of course it depends on the material as well but let's say the film I just finished shooting uh, Chloe, I mean, it, it, it's it's really uh, quite fully covered, you know, and and because it's very performance oriented and it's it's linear, um, it, it it requires a different technique, um, and and I and I've used, I mean, when I started making my first features in the 80s, I was 
uh, funding my films by working as a, as a director on The Twilight Zone and Alfred Hitchcock Presents, which were shooting up in Toronto at that time. And I even shot the pilot of Friday the 13th, if you can believe it. So, uh, so I'm, I'm, aw I'm aware of the, the more conventional language as well, which actually, you know, it's, it's when, when you know that language, and it's an interesting thing to resist and, and kind of play against. So thanks very much. Uh, Adoration comes out May, May 8th. May 8th. Thank you. And if you haven't seen uh, Adam's earlier films, uh, The Adjuster, uh, Speaking Parts, um, Next of Kin, Family Viewing, um, they're all available and, and really great, uh, great to see. So check them out. Thanks. Thanks very much.